Practical wisdom from the first leader of the Christian Church in Jerusalem. Join me, Pastor Hook, as we study James and how to put our faith into action. We are going to study the book of James. Now, some of you have studied James before. I've done a sermon series on James. Uh, when I've done that before, it's usually one uh, Sunday per per uh, per chapter or maybe half chapter. So it's been it's been a while. But I think the last time I did James was maybe about nine or ten years ago, and uh, I think it took us about eight or nine Sundays to get through the book of James. Well, it is really one of my favorite favorite books of the Bible. And uh, I think it's really, really applicable to what's going on today. Uh, I think there's a lot of good stuff in the book of James. And so I've resurrected it again. We're going to go through it maybe a little bit slower than I did when we preached it on Sunday morning uh, so that we can spend some time really digging deep into some of the concepts that come out of James because there's really some great stuff in here. Uh, and so for the next foreseeable future, probably take us into Christmas time, we're going to go through the book of James. And uh, for some of you, this may be a review. Uh, for some of you, it may be a review times two or three, because I know that some of you have not only gone through sermons on the books of James, but some of you maybe even taught the book of James, uh, which so I really have to be on my game here to really bring out um, some nuances that that maybe you haven't considered before uh, because it really is a great book and I'm excited to go through that. So I think without further ado, why don't we just go into the book of James? So here we have the book of James. And um, let's see, this, this is James 1, 1. James, servants of God, and of the Lord Jesus Christ to the 12 tribes scattered among the nations, greetings. So right off the bat, we find out that James is written by James, who doesn't really identify himself other than a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. So he's a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. So we see simply that James is a follower of Jesus Christ. He calls himself a servant of of, of Jesus Christ, the Greek word there is doulos. So he's a doulos of God and of the Lord, giving the title of Lord to Jesus Christ. So he not only follows Jesus, but he sees Jesus as Lord. Uh, the early church had a hymn that's recorded in uh, Philippians 1, uh, that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow and every tongue confess that Jesus is Lord. Um, so, so James is obviously seeing Jesus as Lord. He's a servant of God and he's a servant of the Lord. Now, which James is this, uh, is always been a interesting question, uh, for the early church. There are a few James listed, uh, in the gospels, in the book of Acts, that could be a potential candidate for the James, the author of this letter. The first one would be James, the brother of John. If you'll remember, Jesus had an inner circle. It was Peter, James, and John. And that inner circle were all fishermen. They were all people that Jesus considered to be his inner circle. When Jesus went on to the Mount for the Mount of Transfiguration, he took 
Peter, James, and John with him. It seemed like Jesus had 12 apostles that followed him, but of those 12 apostles, Jesus selected three that were like his best buddies or his best friends or his inner circle. And that was Peter, James, and John. And this James could have been one of those three. Uh, he, but, but not really considered to be one of the, the James of this. The, the, a lot of the scholars don't see this James, this close brother, a uh, friend of Jesus to be the James. Uh, I have, a, I have a, something here that's written. He was martyred around 43 AD. He wrote several books. Since John wrote several books, this is, uh, this is his brother. Maybe he is, um, maybe he wrote books also. If you'll remember, John was the one that uh, was exiled on the island of Patmos, the, the uh, disciple that Jesus loved. Well, this will be his brother, his older brother. And, um, but there's no, there is no indication that he ever wrote anything. There's no indication that even though he was a beloved brother of, of John, that he is not the one that we're talking about. There was also another one called James, the son of Alphaeus. He was also a disciple of Jesus. Uh, Jerome, one of the early authors, wrote this about James, the son of Alphaeus. Do you intend the comparatively unknown James the Less, who is called in Scripture the son of Mary, not, however, Mary the mother of our Lord, to be an apostle or not? If he is an apostle, he must be the son of Alphaeus and a believer in Jesus. For neither did his, for neither did his brethren believe in him. The only conclusion is that the Mary, who is described as the mother of James the Less, was the wife of Alphaeus, the sister of Mary, the Lord's mother, the one who is called John the Evangelist, Mary of Clopas. So there was another, John, John, J, James is a very common name. It'd be like today, for my generation, the most common name is David. The most common female name is Jennifer. So if you're in your 50s, that was the most common name of people born in the early 1960s. James is the same thing. So there were a lot of James running around. Well, one of them would have been uh, Mary called the wife of Clopas, uh, and then she had a son named James, but probably not him also. The most likely candidate for the author of this letter would be James, the brother of Jesus. Now, this is interesting because there is a large part of Christendom that says that Jesus was the only one that came out of the womb of Mary. So there cannot be a brother of Jesus. But uh, if, you, if you believe that, then the way you get around this is to say that maybe he's a half-brother brother through Joseph or perhaps that he's a close cousin of Jesus that was called a brother or um, I have no problem calling it actually a brother of Jesus. But there was a brother of Jesus whether or not it was a direct relational brother of Jesus or a close cousin or a half-brother of Jesus from, from Joseph, that was the first leader of the Christian church in Jerusalem. He was called James the Great or James the, the, the Great One as opposed to James the Lesser. And this James saw Jesus after the resurrection. He would have been a brother or a cousin of Jesus that saw Jesus after the resurrection. 
And seeing Jesus after the resurrection, he became a follower of Jesus Christ because he was the brother of Jesus. He was given a lot of authority, perhaps honor. Uh, at some point, uh, Peter, James, and John, well, that James was killed. And so this James, the greater, would have taken his place as a 12 apostle and run the church of Jerusalem. And he's mentioned many times in scripture as the author of, not as the author of this, but as a ruler in the church uh, in Jerusalem. So if you look to Galatians chapter 1, verses 18 through 20, Paul is writing to the church in Galatia. And he's talking about why he has authority to be a leader in the Christian church. And he goes through a bunch of things. But one of the things that he says in verse 18 of Galatians 1, Paul writes, Then after three years, I went up to Jerusalem to get acquainted with Cephas, who would have been Peter, and stayed with him 15, 15 days. I saw none of the other apostles, only James, the Lord's brother, I assure you before God, what I am writing to you is no lie. I'm writing to you the truth. And so Paul writes of a time that he went after three years to Jerusalem to meet Peter. And he also met this James, the Lord's brother. Now, early Christian writings outside of the Gospels talk about who this Lord's brother was. He was an early ruler of the church in Jerusalem. He would have been the one directing the Jerusalem council in Acts 15, he is the brother of Jesus. He's called James the Greater, or James the Just. He was a very, very prominent figure in the early church that everybody would have known. Uh, also in 1 Corinthians, Paul writes this, For what I received, I passed on to you. This is 1 Corinthians 15, beginning at verse 3. For what I received, I passed on to you as of first importance that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas, or Peter, and then to the twelve, and after that he appeared more than 500 of the brothers and sisters at the same time, most of whom are still living, though some have fallen asleep. So he's talking about the resurrection, about Jesus appearing to everybody. Uh, in verse 7, Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles, and last of all, he appeared to me also as to one abnormally born. So in that verse 7, he says he appeared to James. So there was a James that was very, very, very prominent in the early church that was not one of the disciples of Jesus, one of the early disciples of Jesus, but that he was this James the Just or James the Greater or James that replaced James when he was killed in, in 50 AD. And, and that's who this is. And for this letter to not talk about which James, but just to assume that everybody knows that he is James, leads most scholars, I would say the vast number of scholars, to believe that the James, the author of this Bible, is none other than James the Just, James the Greater, James the Brother of Jesus, James who ran the early church from Jerusalem, James who was very well respected, very learned, very Jewish, but a follower of Jesus. And given any other information 
when I've researched this time after time again and did even more research this morning, I don't see any reason not to believe that the author of this book is indeed James, the brother of Jesus. And so that's what I'm going to go with. That's who wrote this book. And so if he is indeed the, the leader of the early church and the brother of Jesus, that gives some context to how he writes, the authority that he has, and what he might say. So for example, if he's the brother of Jesus, that gives him incredible authority. And people would look up to him because he not only knew Jesus from the apostles, but he could even tell some of the stories of Jesus growing up. Because even though Jesus started his earthly ministry three years before he died, he was Jesus all throughout his life. And that context could come from James. And if he's the leader of the early church, then he understands some of the issues that the early church were struggling with and was given the authority to talk about that. So that's why I believe that it was James the Just, the author of this book, and that's the insight that he gives. So I'm not going to really talk about him more than that. Um, now, what is the next thing? Who is it written to? To the 12 tribes of Israel scattered. So this James who is obviously, if he's leading the church in Jerusalem, which is where Jesus rose again, right? Christianity came out of the Jewish faith. And so the earliest followers of Jesus were Jewish Christians. They were people who were Jews first and then heard the message of, of Jesus Christ, became followers of Jesus Christ, and were in Jerusalem, located in Jerusalem, but mostly Jewish people. And that's who uh, James the Just led, was this Christian followers of Jesus, mostly Jews, who were in Jerusalem. But all the Jews were not just necessarily in Jerusalem, because we have to know that the Jews were scattered very many times. First of all, by the, the, the Babylonian um, Empire. They came in Jerusalem and they scattered Jews. There were lots of times that, um, that the Jews were scattered. When the Romans came in, the Jews were scattered. And so the Jewish people, while they started in Jerusalem and considered Jerusalem their headquarters, they existed throughout the whole entire Roman Empire, the, the whole Middle Eastern area. And those would have been the, the Jews that, that James is writing this letter to. It's not just to the ones in Jerusalem. It could have been, but it was also to the Jews scattered throughout the whole entire Roman Empire. Now, if that's the case, if they are Jewish people, then this letter is decidedly Jewish. It's going to talk about Jewish themes, but it is also a letter that is ascribed to these Jewish people as James, a follower or a slave of Jesus Christ. And so you would think that there would be a lot of stuff in here about Jesus, but there's not. As a matter of fact, this is about the only time that Jesus is mentioned in the whole entire letter, which is interesting because if it truly is the brother of, of Jesus and he's the guy in Jerusalem, you would think there'd be more context, more Jesus stuff but there's not a whole lot of Jesus stuff. As a matter of fact, it's mostly the, this is a moral epistle of how you should live your life. And 
the fact that Jesus died and rose again and covered the sins of people who can't follow this epistle perfectly, all of that stuff is not mentioned at all, which is the reason why Luther, when he looked at this epistle from James, was not pleased with this epistle. He called it an epistle of straw. There was no gospel in here. If you are trying to lead a life holy to God and you don't understand that Jesus died for your sins and makes you acceptable to God, even if you don't follow the law perfectly, if you don't know all that stuff, you look at this epistle and you can be very, very upset because you're not gonna be able to follow this epistle perfectly. And that's the reason why Luther doesn't like this epistle because there's no grace, there's no gospel, there's no benefit of being in the kingdom with the power of the Holy Spirit living in you, the redemption of Jesus Christ covering you, all of that stuff is excluded from this epistle. But I will not exclude that from this epistle. We will go through this epistle and we will take a look at it, but we will understand that we cannot follow it perfectly, but Jesus Christ covers us, makes us, acceptable to God, gives us the power of his Holy Spirit inside of us so that we can be in the kingdom. The kingdom is a major, major theme of Jesus. The kingdom does not fall into this epistle as a major theme at all. But it's written to Jews. It's written to Jews who are living across the empire that were scattered. Now, every time I think about scattered Jews, I can't help but stop thinking about Fiddler on the Roof, right? Tevier, who is living in uh, occupied Russia, or not occupied, right? he's living in Russia, the Russian Empire in the late 1800s, early 1900s. And this is a clan of Jewish people that eventually find their way to Russia from, from Jerusalem. And they are, they are dispersed. They have no land of their own. They're settling on a piece of property that the, that the Russian people are letting them live in. It's probably uh, Kiev, Ukraine, Poland, I don't know. It's this fictional town of Anatevka, I think. And they are there basically at the mercy or at the blessing of the Russian czar, but they eventually then get moved out. And so they are a people without a home. And Jerusalem, the Jews believe that Jerusalem is their home, that that was land promised to them by God. And we don't understand what this is because here in the United States, we have strong property rights. Like the, well, I'm recording to you this from my home right now. And I have no fear that some government is gonna come in and kick me out of this home. Uh, but if you live in other places around the world, you don't have that blessing of security because if you live anywhere outside of the United States that is not a strong property rights nation, there is no guarantee that some larger power is not going to come in and disperse you or drive you from your home. And when that happens, which has happened throughout all of history, you become an exile. So for example, right now, we have a lot of people that are being displaced in the Middle East because of wars, perhaps in Syria, perhaps in Iran or Iraq, or some of these places where people are being dispersed from their home, not because the government is kicking them out of their home, 
but because the conditions in their home are so horrible and the in their hometown are so horrible, they have no choice. That if they stay, they will likely die. They don't want to die. They don't want their families to die. They don't want their friends. And so they leave as a group and they go somewhere else. They're exiles. And this is very, very common, not only in the world today, but throughout history. So when you are in exile, what is it that holds you together? Well, in Fiddler of the Roof, Fiddler on the Roof, it is the fact that they're all Jewish. They're followers of, of God through the Jewish traditions and the Jewish faith. And it is that tradition that holds that whole tribe together so that no matter where they go, no matter where they're exiled to and they set up their camp in a place, they are still held together and bonded together by the traditions, by the faith that drives them. That's the whole story of Fiddler on the Roof, that they live like a fiddler perched precariously on a roof that the only thing that holds them together is their traditions. And we don't understand this because we are not exiled. We are firmly ensconced where we are. But if we ever were exiled as a Christians, and it is quite possible at some point you could become exiled because you are a Christian or driven out because, because you're not a follower of the state Instead, you're a follower of Jesus Christ, and that puts you at odds with the state. And so the state starts putting onerous conditions on you. And if you wanted to really be a follower of Jesus Christ, this happened in the early 1800s. There were a bunch of German Lutherans living in the state of Prussia. They had this thing called the Prussian Union, which was that the state said, if you're going to be a Christian, this is what Christianity has to look like. This is what you have to do. And there were a bunch of German Lutherans said, well, that is not acceptable to us. So they hopped in a bunch of boats. They came over to the United States to find religious freedom where they settled. So this, this happens all the time throughout history. And that's who James is writing this letter to. These are, that's called the diaspora or the dispersed tribes of, of Jerusalem, of, of the Jewish tribes. And so that's who he's writing this letter to. And we'll get into that more when we continue studying this in the future. Um, and um, yeah, I think, I think that's, so we've talked about who it is. I believe it's James the Just. We've talked about who he's writing it to. I believe these are the 12 tribes scattered throughout the whole entire Middle East, part of the Roman Empire, probably at odds with the Roman Empire, although Judaism was an accepted religion in the Roman Empire. Christianity was not. And we'll find out, you know, later on that they actually become uh, persecuted because they, are, because they are Christians. But at this point, James is just writing to Jewish Christians, although he doesn't necessarily call them Jewish Christians. And maybe that's on purpose so that they're under the radar but James is going to talk about um, what he sees as the most important lessons that he wants to teach them. And we will get into those tomorrow when we pick up in James chapter 1 and we'll finally get to verse 2. So as we close today, would you join me in prayer? Gracious God, thanks for keeping us all safe over the holidays. Uh, thank you for James and his letter to us. And uh, bless us until we meet again in your name. Amen.